Good morning. My name is Erin Phelps, and I'm a member of the Young Adults Wednesday Night Dinner Community Group and also the Misty Way Community Group. The reading this morning comes from Psalm 2. Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from the slavery of God. Slavery to God, excuse me. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on the holy mountain. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities for his anger flares up in an instant. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central Church. Glad you could join us this morning. My name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central Church. And we continue our sermon series in Psalms this morning. And today we're in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, as you read just now, is one of four, what we call a Messianic Psalm. Messianic Psalm, more commonly known to us as anointed or Messiah or Christ in Greek. And Psalm 2 is also in the category of royal psalm, meaning it's talking about the king and his power. And just as the category of the psalm indicates, the main topic that this psalm touches upon for us this morning is the topic of the promised Messiah, promised anointed one, the king that is coming to rule, or again, commonly known as our savior, the Lord. And this psalm also has ties to King David as a divine king, a king that is to come in the line of David. In the history of sports, there are many great champions. Recently, as you may have all heard, Bill Russell, a renowned basketball player, passed away at the age of 88. He anchored Boston Celtics basketball dynasty that won 11 championships in 13 years. He was also the first black coach in any major sports in the United States. For tennis fans, we all can talk about the dominance of Serena Williams or Williams sisters. For golf, Tiger Woods, for sure. For football fans here, the undefeated Dolphins or the Patriots dynasty, or more commonly known as Tom Brady dynasty. You can talk about the USC football with Reggie Bush, talking about Southern California, not South Carolina. Clemson, yes, for a few of you or many of you out there, been waiting to be mentioned after many, many months. I know you've been being mentioned every week, week in and week out. Clemson was mentioned for a while, right? <laughs> yeah, Clemson, right? You could think about those championships. You could talk about North Carolina, Tar Heels women's soccer team. 
who won a record eight straight national championships, not to mention 21 out of 31 possible championships to date. A common thread when you talk about all these great champions is how they carry themselves onto the field and what the opponents felt in going up against them. They felt inevitable defeat, that they will lose the match, even the match began. I remember watching an interview of a basketball player who was about to play against Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest basketball player ever. And he said, in order to play against him, you have to mentally prepare. Mentally prepare to think that you could possibly beat him. There was such fear and reverence against playing Michael, that you felt like you lost even before you got there. And that in itself was a difficult task, not to mention when you actually play, you lost anyways. So when I read Psalm 2, it pictures for us a similar matchup. A one side, we see the king, the anointed one of Israel. On the other side, we see nations of peoples, according to verse 1, that often denotes people in contrast who stands against Israel, whether it's during the coronation of the king or during a transition time of a Israel where oftentimes rebellion happened around them. We don't know exactly when this was written, but one aspect is very clear. Psalm tells us against the Lord's anointed, as described in this psalm, as a chosen king of Israel, the nations that go up against them stands no chance. It's not even a close battle. Even before the battle, psalm writer simply says in verse 1, why do they waste their time right, with their futile plans? In verse 4, they say, but the one who rules in heaven laughs at them. The Lord scoffs at them. It is not even a contest. Let's pack your bags and go home even before fight begins. So what this psalm does for the congregation that gathers, assembly that gathers in this coronation of the king, is to know that their hope in this king, the Lord's anointed, will carry them on. As they sing this song, they're reminded as you align yourself with this king, you can rest assured that you will also be victorious because he will be and he has been victorious, thus giving hope for those who are on his side, hope, courage, the empowerment in their own battle as they live this life. My family and I were out of town last week, and we visited one of our sister churches, New City Chattanooga, pastor by Reverend Kevin Smith. And we went there to listen to Kevin Smith uh, speak, but just like us last week, they had a RUF minister to come speak as well. And one of the things I was really challenged by this pastor, one of the things that he asked was, what do you think today's college students struggle with the most? What do you guys think? Chemistry, right? Chemistry, the dorm schedule, 7 o'clock class. And some said sin, <laughs> definition of sin, right? But this pastor simply said hopelessness. Hopelessness. Not having hope in their daily walk, in their school in their family, in their own country, in their faith, in their circumstances of wondering what hope is there in my life today? Why am I doing all this for anyhow? What is it at the end of the day? What hope can I cling on to? And I believe this struggle is not confined to our college students only. 
I believe it is true for all of us today. Whether it is hopelessness of the day-to-day struggle of a job that seems to be going nowhere, the daily mundane of watching our children, it could be the hopelessness we see as the weather ravages our nation and the global conflict that doesn't seem to stop at all, not to mention the inflation and potential recession on the way. Ongoing racial abuse, political turmoil, you name it. And perhaps even your own battle, your own hard struggle, wondering where is hope in all these things. I feel like this often. This week, particularly, I felt like hopelessness was heavy on my heart. Do you struggle with that? Do you wrestle with that? So the question for us is, where do you go from there? Where do we go from here? And in light of this, I believe Psalm 2 points us to the hope that you and I could have. As God declares in verse 10 and 11 of Psalm 2, Now then, you kings, be act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. And you may be thinking, what kind of hope is that, right? But bear with me, because I believe in this statement, in this psalm, we see two ways that this psalm gives us hope. They are the hope that comes from the anointed one that rules as our king, and also the hope that comes to us as the anointed king serves as our king. The anointed one who rules as our king, and the anointed one that serves us as our king. First point, first hope that we find is this anointed king is the one that who rules over us. Max Lucado, a renowned Christian writer, wrote about this story of naval vessel, a silly story, but it's a, a story that I want to share with you. He said that there are two battleships assigned to the training squadron had been at a sea of maneuvers in heavy weather for several days. And putting himself in a first-person shoe, he says, I was serving on the lee battleship, the captain was, and was on a watch on the bridge as night fell. The visibility was poor with patchy fog, so the captain remained on the bridge, keeping an eye on all the activities. Shortly after dark, the lookout on the wing reported, Light! Bearing on the starboard bow! The captain called out, Is it steady or moving astern? The lookout replied, Steady, captain, which meant that we're on a dangerous collision course with that ship. The captain then called to the signalman, Signal that vessel... We're on a collision course. Advise you to change your course 20 degrees. Back came the signal. Advisable for you to change the course 20 degrees. The captain captain said, Send. I am a captain. Change course 20 degrees. Came the reply, I'm a seaman. Second class. You had better change course 20 degrees. By that time, Captain was furious, sped out, said, I'm a battleship, change course 20 degrees. Back came the flashing light, I am a lighthouse. The battleship changed the course. (laughs) Wisely, I may add. And that's the type of wisdom this psalm calls for here. The enemy, you're up against an immovable force. Enemy, you're up against something that you cannot overcome. Psalm 2 verse 1 says, why are the nations so angry? 
Why do they waste their time with futile plans and the kings of the earth prepare for battle? The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from the slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem on my holy mountain. We find the protagonist, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord's anointed and the sacred king on one side. On the other side, this battle, we find the worldwide confederation of the foreign kings. And the plot begins by the start of this coup d'etat, by this confederation, saying, let's overthrow this righteous king. So against this anointed one, the psalm writer describes verse 2 as a futile rebellion begins in his original language, make empty, devoid of benefits. In verse 3, we see they speak of breaking the chains and freeing ourselves, meaning to break is allusion to Samson's tearing apart Delilah's binding cord, showing extreme resentment and willingness to do any means necessary to break apart from the bond. And God laughs at them in verse 4. In addition, he promises swift judgment, not only because of their attempts are futile, but their attempts show contempt for God's sovereign rule. Therefore, divine wrath is incurred. And we clearly see, what we clearly see, church, is that this anointed king, Messiah, in Greek, Christos, Christ, is God's chosen vessel to rule righteously. He has all the power, authority, and might to rule, and simply on the fact that God of the universe, God who's a creator, God who's sovereign, decides to place him as the king. So nothing no nations, no power, no authorities can stand against them. So when the Israelites sing this song together in their gathering, as a psalm is supposed to do, especially during the royal coronation of their king, they look to the promise God gave them as Israel is a chosen nation. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, For you are a holy people. You belong to the Lord, your God, of all the people on the earth the Lord, your God, has chosen you to be his own special treasure. Israel is reminded again that despite the rebellions of the world around them, God will not only preserve them, but their king will have power over the rebellious nations. And if you look beneath the surface, this is a quite remarkable claim. Why? Because throughout the history of Israel, we learn that Israel doesn't really play a powerful role in any realm, right? They don't have a power overseeing large territories. They're not a typical superpower that we're used to watching movies on, reading about, like Egypt, Babylon, Rome, and all these other great nations. One could argue that only during the time of King David and Solomon where their influence is vast and wide, but majority of the time, man, have you read the Old Testament? They're constantly fighting and losing. Quite often, they're not. How about their kings? Right? More often than not, what they are told of the kings is, this king so-and-so did evil in the eyes of the Lord. This king did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this king was worse than all of them. Right? And as a result, not only the king suffers, but the Israelites suffer the consequences. So what is the hope? What is this hope the Israelites are supposed to hold on to as they sing this song? 
two hopes that we find is the first, it reminds them that despite the nations, ethnos, the, the, the confederation that rages against Israel and her king, God ultimately has the last laugh. God will conquer and God will preserve this nation against all odds. Hope is not on how great Israel is, how great their army is, how great of a fighting force they are, but great God who chose them. That's why they sing and remember not how great they are. They don't parade their armies in front of their people, but they sing praises to God who chose them. Second hope is that even despite the failures of their own kings and consequently themselves in failing to even heed to this promise, hope again is on God who does not give up on them. God who keeps the promise will carry this out. They were reminded of God's promise to Abraham who said in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. You will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. They remember that promise. They also remember the promise given to King David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, where God tells King David, your house, your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. God will do it, even when they cannot do it. Why? Because he is the one who will rule. He will set his anointed king to rule with authority and power, and that's the basis hope of hope Israelites sing about in Psalm 2. The question is, what about us? Right? What hope does this give us today? What Scripture teaches us is that when we believe in this anointed king, Christos, Christ, our Messiah, Jesus, then you and I are called spiritual Israelites, fellow heirs, adopted into this nation, this family of God. And furthermore, we're living in the New Testament era, have now know that the promised king of Psalm 2 is King Jesus who fulfills this prophecy. The psalm is quoted numerous times throughout the New Testament with reference to Jesus being the Son of God. In baptism, in his transfiguration, in his triumphal entry to name the few. And this Jesus overcame death and sin and his resurrection so you and I could have that hope as well. Hope against hope. Hope eternal, not only that this God does not forget about you and I, but he does not give up on us. That he loves us. That he will carry out his plans despite, despite the challenges that are far too great for us and despite even our own failures that often seem to get in our way. Yes, we face challenges, and at times even the world, the system, the circumstances that are far too great, too unjust, too overwhelmingly frightening for us. Not to mention the struggles and failures due to our own sin that easily entangles us. But what we could rest assured this morning, church, is this king, this anointed king, has the power, has the authority to rule not only rule out there, but rule in here. And he will be victorious. 
Nothing is too impossible for him as he reminds us what is impossible with men is possible with God. And look at the power on display now as the anointed king speaks. The king proclaims the Lord's decree in verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. You'll break them with an iron rod and you smash them like clay pots. Only the owner can smash their own clay pots. Church, this is the story of our king, declaration of our king. As a popular children's Bible song goes, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Your king who rules over the nations, who reigns from the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and this mighty king knows you. As one of my woman shepherds prayed for me this weekend, this week, and she said, pray that pastor would just preach to remind us that we're loved. Church, you are loved. You're his. You're precious in his sight. His banner over you is love, love, love. And this king reminds us that he is the one that will rule. And as we sing this song, church, as we tell one another, nothing, nothing can overcome, despite even our own sins, God's plan for us For you, for me, for his kingdom, he will reign forever. Amen? And that's the gospel truth. And man, it gets better than that. You know that? Not only is this king powerful to rule over us, but man, this king also serves us. The anointed one, the one who serves us is the second hope that we have. One of my former pastors is a missionary to Thailand. He once told us of a story of a beloved Thai king named Bamila Bo Odude. And this king is a constitutional monarch. Perhaps a lot of us in the States are familiar with Queen Elizabeth of England. So just think a similar role, but more revered, more honored due to the custom and the history of the Thai people. Thai people are known to revere their king and honor them. But we know that this king, in particular, was beyond that. He was so loved by his people. So when this king died in 2016, hear this, church, his death suddenly took a toll on the people. And grief was widespread across the country. The crowds of people gathered outside the hospital and wore pink clothing in hope that it would bring him good health. The aftermath of his death was a powerful one as the country declared an official state of mourning for an entire year. To honor this, many people, especially those working for the government, wore black to work. And no celebrations were allowed for a whole month. Clubs were quiet. Even the infamous Kaohsiung Road stayed silent during this period of mourning. The question is, why was he so loved? So our missionary told us why he was so loved and we go to the picture of the king. Not only he initiated many reforms, he set up lots of scholarships, but even played a role in peacemaking in times of crisis. But most of all, this revered honor king was often seen like this. 
a king who is so honored and revered, who Thai people by their custom and culture bow down at the side of the king, was often pictured with people, sitting with them, being with them, eating with them, identifying with them, even serving them. This king served his people. When we sing Psalm 2 and think of the picture the psalm writer portrays for us, it's easy to think if someone this mighty, this powerful, it's no-brainer for us to submit to serve. It's natural. When you face a mighty foe, mighty king, you bow down and serve. So we may think it's logical for us to heed to the warnings we find in verse 10 and 11 and 12. It says, Now then, you kings, be wise, act wisely, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal son or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of your activities for his anger flares up in an instant. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. Again, it's easy to think, well, if I'm smart, as the psalm writer says, I won't be messing with the biggest guy in the room, right? Yes, it is wisdom to submit to serve, to approach with reverent fear. You see those Instagram memes when you are faced with the bear? You don't go and say, okay, let's, go to, let's, let's get this done, right? You pretend you're dead in order for the bear to hopefully pass by you. That's wisdom, right? So I get it when it says, you know, submit to him or he'll become angry. But some writer says, rejoice with trembling. Some writer also says, what joy for all who take refuge in him. Question is, what joy? How can we have this joy? It almost sounds like God is saying, obey, you must. But not only obey, act like you enjoy it, right? Now, that sounds a lot like forced obedience, right? That doesn't sound like the gospel at all. So where is this deeper gospel truth in all this? indicate for us. So picture with, me, picture with me for a minute, church, because as we delve into this more, this imagery more, you will see this immense power of God turning into good news of the gospel, the immense gospel of grace on display. Verse 12, in its original language, is more aptly translated as kiss the sun or kiss purely. Kiss the sun or kiss purely. Some of your other English translations may have that in your Bibles. And again, that is an invitation to submit, but also to worship, as it was customary for the people at the time, a royal subject to the, come to the king, and they submit by kissing the feet. So imagine with me for a second again that you are the royal subject, and you're told as a royal subject to be wise, to be warned, and to serve. And now as you approach this king, this Messiah, this Savior, and to kiss the king, you are to prostrate yourself down to behold his feet, the royal feet in your hands. But as you approach this king, as you take his feet to your mouth to kiss, you notice something is different about this king. Rather than the soft, clean feet that had no business of hardship as royalty, but you, what you find is rather feet that walk the path of Calvary. Feet that walked around Israel, often in harsh conditions, not in glamorous horses to preach the good news 
to the marginalized. And most of all, what you find are the nail-pierced holes in this feet you're about to kiss. And in the moment of wonder and amazement, you look up to this king, the powerful one, and he moves towards you. And his loving embrace lifts you up, allows you to sit, and as you do so, this king bends down on his knees even, and he rather washes your feet, your dirty, dirty feet. And as you look away in shame of all the time you have betrayed, rebelled against this king, he calls you forgiven. He calls you his friend. He calls you a fellow heir, his beloved. And he invites you to the banqueting table and bestows upon you the honor of being at the table with this king. This church is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the anointed king. This king came to us, the Bible tells us, This benevolent king died for us, the scripture reminds us. This anointed king rose again to promise eternal life for us. Oh, you who are beneficiary of this gospel grace, what joy will you find in serving him? What joy will you have in your heart as you submit to him? What joy will you find as you rest in his king's house. What joy you will find knowing that you don't deserve any of this, but he still wants you. What joy is there though you are struggling, you feel like you're so far away from the Lord, you're heartbroken, and you don't know where you're headed, your heart is torn and ashamed, but he still declares you this morning that you are mine, you are loved, my love for you is unending. And if this is our king, and if this is our God, we cannot help but to submit. And not only to submit, but submit with joy, to find refuge in his grace, in his banner of love, not based upon my own merit, not on my own righteousness, but the hope that we find at the foot of the cross. Because he loves you. The one who got the whole world in his hand loves you. He came to die so you can live, and he's going to put his life on the line for eternity. What more will he do for your own good, as Romans 8 reminds us? You know, even more, now you and I get to sing this. We also wait for our Savior who will also return, who will make sense of all the craziness that you and I are going through, all the sufferings, tears, and pain He will come and wipe it away, even when we don't seem to understand why, why, why. The scripture reminds us he will be back. He will be back. Creates longing, longing in our hearts for the heaven when Christ returns, where his reign will be fully realized. That's our destiny. That's the gospel. That's the undefeated hope that we hold on to this morning, church. As we close, I want to read you a children's story. A winner of 2020 Caldecott Medal Award, a Newbery Honor Award, 
and Katie Nelson's artwork earning Coretta Scott King's award. I love this book because it is history, our history, but also the reasons why authors wrote it, right? The story time with Pastor Josh this morning. Kwame Alexander writes on many reasons why he wrote this poem. He says, mostly I, write, I wrote a poem to remind Samaya, his daughter, and her friends and her family, and to all of you, and to remind myself to never, ever give up. Because as Maya Angelou wrote, we may encounter many defeats, but we must not be defeated. It may even be necessary to encounter defeat so that we can know who we are, so that we can see all that happened, and I rose. I did, not, I did get knocked down flat in front of the whole world, and I rose. Keep rising. So bear with me as I read a children's book for us. Again, you know the title of the sermon is Undefeated Hope. The title of the book is called Undefeated. Right? What a beautiful picture. I know. Should we call our children back? <laughs> no, it's, I think they're having more fun over there. All right. This is for the unforgettable. The swift, the sweet ones who hurtled history and opened the world of possible. I was told we have to do that. The ones who survived America by any means necessary. And the ones who didn't. This is for the undeniable. The ones who scored with chains on one hand and faith in the other. I know hopefully this will motivate you to sit up front next time as well. <laughs> this is for the unflappable, the sophisticated ones who boxed adversity and tackled vision. Who shine their light for the world to see and don't stop till the break of dawn. This is for the unafraid, the audacious ones who carry the red, wide, and weary blues on the battlefield to save an imperfect union. The righteous marching ones who sang, we shall not be moved because black lives matter. This is for the unspeakable. This is for the unspeakable. This is for the unspeakable. This is for the unlimited, unstoppable ones, the dreamers and doers who swim across the big sea of our imagination and show us the majestic shores of the promised land. The Wilma Rudolphs, Muhammad Ali's, Althea Gibson's, Jesse Owens, the Jordans, the LeBron, 
the Serenas, the Cheryls, the Reese Whitleys, and the Undiscovered. This is for the unbelievable, the we real cool ones. This is for the unbending, the black as the night is beautiful ones. This is for the underdog and the uncertain, the unspoken but no longer untitled. This is for the undefeated. This is for you, and you, and you. This is for us. Because what a beautiful picture of resilience, perseverance, history, our history. But I found in the midst of these pages, hope. Hope against hope. Hope in the one that will deliver. And I want to read that too because it reflects a similar heart in this psalm this morning. This psalm, this poem, this beautiful song is meant to be sung like that together. Together in our community to remember God's story. His story is our story. The author's intent becomes our intent as we sing this song to remind one another not to give up and lose hope. Keep standing and run to the Father, even in light of danger and toils, even against our own failure, and kiss the Son, as the psalm writer reminds us. And as you do so, you will see his nail-pierced hands and feet that tells you that you are love, that he's not done with you yet. This is your story. This is my story. This is also our story of undefeated hope. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray with me. Father, that's our prayer as we gather this morning to sing this psalm. Father, it's been challenging seasons for many of us. Often than not, Lord, we are overwhelmed by the situations at hand. It could be due to the fact that, Lord, the world, the systems, circumstances that we're in seem to provide no hope. And we wonder out loud, what is this for? What is my hope? Perhaps many of us are struggling in our own sin and wonder, why do I keep getting in my own way? Why do I keep rebelling and running away from our Lord who loves me, who loves me, who loves me? And we find no hope as we look to our own righteousness. So, Lord, we gather this morning as a broken people, broken in many places, sitting in the puddles of our tears, but unbroken in our promise that we hold on, we are held together by your promise. So we come with hope that, Lord, that you who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. Despite our own failures, despite our own hopelessness, that you will indeed carry out your own good purposes through the mountaintops, through the valleys. Indeed, Lord, you who have been faithful, same yesterday, today, and forevermore. In that we trust. In Christ let me pray. Amen.